Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please find our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Kim and I, every week, talk with you about the latest in trends and education going on in the wine world, and we find articles and come in and discuss them with you. But first, we like to talk about what we ourselves Googled this week. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? I Googled a lot of recipes. I didn't do so much on the wine side of it, but more on the food side of it. You know, it's it's still sort of amazing to me that I have all these cookbooks at home, and yet I find myself going to my phone or to my iPad and putting in ingredient ideas and what can I come up with for dinner. So I was sort of on a Greek kick last week, so did some Googling of souvlaki and gyro recipes and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So a lot of food gets Googled from my house. What about you, Mark? What was your... Uh, what was your Googling from last the week? The foodie, the foodie. Oh, so bad. I like it. <laughs> well, this week, in regards to one of our courses we did, I was researching Thomas Jefferson. So you being the history person, Thomas Jefferson's noted to be the first wine geek in American history. He was very popular touring Italy and France. He was the first ambassador to France, so he did a lot of time over there. He was also involved very historically with the Mazi family in Italy and and actually his words, all men are created equal, are in the Declaration of Independence because of Mazi's communication with Jefferson. So interesting. And the last thing I thought was a key note about him was he believed a long time ago that wine was healthy. And I was shocked to find out he lived to 83 years old. Mm -hmm. So pretty amazing And left a pretty extensive wine cellar too. Our first topic today is from the Washington Post, Kim, and it's about Italy's wine industry being tested by climate change in the vineyards. We both love talking about the Italian wine industry. And climate change is one of those hot topics in wine at the moment and has been for the last few years. Uh, when we talk about rising temperatures annually and how many more you know, sunshine days and changes in weather pattern, you really do see a lot of evidence for this just by looking at grape vines and the wine industry. Plants and animals are very susceptible to minute changes in the environment and in the climate. And we really do see that wine grapes are a really good indicator of what areas are getting warmer. And then also what areas are getting wetter or getting drier due to changes in uh, in weather patterns as well. So this article focused specifically on Italy, but it's it's more than just Italy. You know, there there's a lot of information out there about how climate change is imp- impacting the wine world all over the place first article I've seen with just one specific region in Italy in general. I've never seen climate change articles about just Italy. You always hear mm-hmm. global right. wine issues, but never one specific. And they, they specifically were talking about northern Italy, Veneto region. In this area, every year they grow for throughout history the same grapes every year. And they know when things are changing in the vineyard. And so they were focusing on this where it's getting hotter, the grapes are actually showing some sunburn, right, sunburn on and the it's grapes. affecting the flavor. So they're thinking, what can we do? And it's definitely an issue. Mm-hmm. And those warmer climates 
do impact white grape varieties in a slightly different way than red grape varieties. We're talking about extra ripening, but also the red grapes and white grapes ripen at different times. There's different patterns, there's different flavor profiles that result when you have a cooler vintage or a hotter vintage. So that whole um, sunburned thing for the white grapes, because white grapes are are generally more delicate than red grapes, um, and they tend to get picked first. So if you have a vineyard that has red and white grapes going on, usually the white grapes are the things that are coming off the vines first, and the reds are left on there to get a little bit more hang time, get a little bit more ripeness. And white wines really are dependent on their acid structure, you know, that bright, crisp acidity to give them structure and backbone and personality. And when a grape gets too ripe, it loses that. And so then you lose the whole personality of the wine. It changes completely. Yeah, Kim, you mentioned the two white grapes in this area. Did you you think it was funny? Obviously, they mentioned uh, Pinot Grigio, Mm -hmm. but they were referring Prosecco instead of Glera. They were calling it the Prosecco. So it seemed like they were making the article to be tailored more to the general wine to understand what it's going to affect. I mean, and I'm okay with that. I'm I'm actually all right with not using the word Glera to describe the grape that's in Prosecco. I know that's probably a little counterintuitive when we talk about grape varieties and wanting to use the correct terms, but Prosecco has really become this powerhouse in the market. And I think talking about it in terms that consumers understand can be very valuable. We talked about sunburn on the grapes. They mentioned that also there's a lot more diseases on the grapes. And then a lot of the feedback was the producers. And I think this might also go back to Prosecco. A lot of the producers are afraid to admit to the climate change because it will affect Prosecco. So mm-hmm. if they start getting the word out, it's affecting the Prosecco, people might start then worrying about what they're getting in the bottle. But this is so typical. It's like, this is what has gone on for hundreds of years. You know, if there's a problem going on, it seems like winemakers and grape growers are always in denial at the beginning of an issue. We saw this with phylloxera in the 1800s. People were always like, oh, there's no problem. There's no problem. No, 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 no. Our wines are fine. You kind of put blinders on when it's your livelihood and you don't want to admit that there's a problem. And we do sort of see this with lots of people who are in denial about climate change, whether they don't want the blame or they don't want to admit that there's a problem or or because they're afraid it's going to affect their market, like you just said, with the Prosecco producers. So yeah, yeah, this from looking (laughs) looking at this from a historical perspective, I I don't feel like this is any big surprise that people would be like, oh, no, there's no problem here. Well, let's talk about, Kim, what the actual climate problem is that they're saying is that the summers are a lot hotter. So this results in a a shorter growing season, Mm -hmm. developing sugar quickly in the grapes. So for the Glera or the Prosecco, it should be a a floral, low alcohol, but the environment's going to change that outcome of the grape. So they were saying in 2018, there were 13 times it reached over 95 degrees. And in their history, they might have had one time over 95 degrees. So it's changing what is happening to that grape because ripening a grape is much more complex than just, all right, it gets a certain amount of heat, it gets a certain number of sunshine days and a grape ripens and then you pick it because there are all these chemical components inside the grape that need to ripen at a certain rate. So it's not just, all right, the grape is ripe. It's longer growing season makes for a more flavorfully perfect grape to be turned into wine. And when it ripens too fast because of the heat, you aren't developing those flavors. You're more just getting the sugar and you haven't given the fruit enough time to develop all the the delicious flavors. So like think of it 
as say you get a peach from someplace, but it's off season. So you get one of those peaches that you can't get the skin off of and that is really rock hard and that you can't cut up. And when you taste it, yes, it might have sugar and acid, but it doesn't taste very peachy and it's not soft and juicy. That's what's happening here. Yes, it's a ripe piece of fruit, but it doesn't have all those wonderful flavor compounds that make you happy when you bite into it and be like, oh, this is delicious. And that's what happens when you have all this sunshine day, but not enough flavor developing in the fruit. So the climate change is basically alternate patterns in the vineyard and they are then thinking we need to adapt. So this is good. They're thinking ahead. What can we do for the future? So they looked at some new water issues they could take care of, some new shade techniques Mm -hmm. of the vineyard. So why don't we just talk briefly about some of the solutions they feel they're coming up with. So dealing with a grapevine as a whole unit and not just looking at the fruit is a big part of viticulture. So a lot of grape growers do pay attention to what are the leaves doing? How are those leaves shading the fruit and giving them some protection? So looking at the entire plant that way is one thing that that is uh, something that's being looked into as a way to protect. Yeah, and usually, Kim, the, the vineyards, they'll maybe leave a little bit more leaves to protect the grapes under the leaves. But in this, they were saying they're actually removing more of the leaves to allow the grapes to adapt to the heat, which I of, thought was kind of interesting. And they're talking about like like literally having the grape get a thicker skin, which I thought was was really interesting. That that, that seemed to me sort of not counterintuitive, but well, it seems I, like it was something's like, going to huh. take a long time for the grape to kind yeah. of mutate to that. You Especially know? when you're, yeah, when you use, you know, it's the same plant over and over and over again. It's not like you're replanting your grapevines. So I don't have enough of a scientific background in viticulture to understand how the plant would actually use that, call it like institutional knowledge, like does the plant learn to make thicker grapes because in a couple of vintages it had all this extra sun exposure? I, I I don't know the answer to that. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the grapes, Kim, because our listeners need to realize that in Italy, these regions to get certain government certifications, they have to use the grapes the government says in that area to mm-hmm. be certified at certain levels. So they were talking in this, they may actually start looking at planting different grape varietals, yep. which totally changes, we talked about earlier, a sense of place for this region in Italy. You're thinking Pinot Grigio, you're thinking Prosecco. If they start growing Chardonnay because they have to adapt to the climate, people are going to be like, why am I getting it from here, right? Yeah. So this is really change. more of an American approach to climate change, I think, because when we read articles and hear about scientific experiments that are going on by U.S. growers about how do we adapt to climate change, you do hear a lot about this development of new grape varieties, grapes that are going to be able to deal with either a situation where there's more water or less water, more on the more water side, because we see, you know, more intense storms now with changing with the changing climate. And I think maybe it's that Americans are more willing to sort of be adaptable when it comes to grape varieties. But then you have to think about the market. And it's like, all right, are consumers going to be willing to drink wine made from these brand new grape varieties that we almost might feel compelled to use because nothing else is going to be able to grow in a climate that's that's even warmer. But in more traditional areas like Italy, I definitely can see that being a little more of a struggle and a bit of a, of a stumbling point, not only because grape growers tend to be pretty traditional people, but 
but then also the market. You know, are people going to be buying these wines? They did talk about water issues. So if if it's hotter, it's getting drier. They need to find a way to get more water to the roots of mm-hmm. these plants. So that was one of the things they're looking to yeah. adapt. Also, they mentioned Kim about moving to higher elevations to offset climate change. So in a region of Veneto, like where Prosecco, they do have hillsides they could go to, but you're talking more higher costs or mm-hmm. smaller areas to produce. Yeah. And when you so move to those higher elevation and those hillside places, it's harder for machines to work on there. So then you're adding human labor costs in there too. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You know, a lot of the best wine producing areas in the world are pretty labor intensive because they're harder to get to. But that is something to think about and to add to that equation. Well, I like that they mentioned it because it's kind of setting the stage for, okay, if you start seeing your favorite wines go up a few bucks, it's because we're adapting to climate change. We might have sourced vineyards different. So I like that. I like Mm -hmm. that they're mentioning it, but we had to get the word out to our listeners that uh, this is a change that's happening. A lot of people say climate change. You have an opinion on climate change, Kim? Not a political statement. I have a pretty strong opinion on climate change. Yeah. We got to do something. We got to do something quick. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Now I want to talk to you about one of my favorite topics, which is grape varieties. I love to talk about different grape varieties. I'm not quite sure why this is a passion of mine, but I sure love this topic. And this one today, Mark, is about some less familiar grape varieties, which is a little bit of a topic that I have to kind of sit back a little bit and say, all right, less familiar to whom? (laughs) It depends on the knowledge level of the consumer or the person who I'm talking to about it, because a less familiar grape variety to you, Mark, might be completely never even heard of before from by somebody else. Yes. Yeah, so this article was in the Press Democrat. The author is Dan Berger. And I was just saying to Kim that this gentleman weekly is, has an article published on wine that's always very interesting. When we talk about grapes or varietals in wine, Kim, typically there's 10 people can think of off the top of their head. And, and 80% of the time, that's what people go for. And we had just run a class on unusual varieties in wine to try to get people to see that there's different things out there. And I know us being the geeks, we like when we find something we've never had or you rarely see. So we're trying to get people to have a little passion behind that. And I, that's what he was basically saying in this mm-hmm. article. Go out and look for the unusual. Because there are some really cool things out there. I had a, an event a couple of weeks ago where where I did just this. You know, I, I round up some grape varieties that are hopefully less familiar to people. They're ones that I'm familiar with, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is going to to be familiar with them. So it's, I think it's always fun to introduce people to grapes that they've never had before, but that the style of the wine is somewhat familiar. So I like to kind of group those things together. Like, okay, you might never have heard of or tasted this Verdejo before, but if you like Sauvignon Blanc, you're going to like this wine. And I think that that is really fun for people. It's fun for me, but I think it's fun for the consumer too, because it really opens people's eyes to, yes, there are all these other wines out there that, if you know which ones are similar to what you already like, 
then it's going to really open up a whole big world of other things that are out there for you to enjoy. And just so our listeners know, if you meet Kim and she hands you her business card, she has this great little feature on the back that says, if you like this wine, you'll like, and she fill it in. So if she was talking to you. Good idea. I I like it. (laughs) Thank you. So in this article, he was talking about obscure grapes, but he focused on five regions, Kim. So I thought we could kind of go through the regions and see what you thought of what he recommended. Uh, The first region was Italy. Mm -hmm. And we just previously talked about Italy, but you you have to think that there are so many, some say thousands of varietals that come from Italy that a lot are indigenous that people don't even see in this country. So to start with Italy, I thought was was perfect. Yeah, Italy is is almost a gimme when you talk about this because so many of the fine wines of Italy are made from grape varieties that you don't see grown in any other places. Yeah, there might be a little bit grown in California or you know maybe there's some overlap with Spain, but there's not a whole lot of these grapes grown in other places. So if you like Italian wine and you regularly drink Italian wine, you may be familiar with some of these grape varieties. But if it's not necessarily something on your radar, then all of these might be unfamiliar to you. There's one that they mentioned from the north of the country, which is fairly common and pretty easy to find out there called Barbera. And Barbera sort of has a sister grape called Dolcetto, which we often find going hand in hand. And the same producers will usually grow a Barbera and a Dolcetto. But they focused, this article focused a little bit more on the Barbera, which I think is probably a little easier to find out there than Dolcetto. Do you think? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I would say so. And he only mentioned two, so I, I was shocked by that. I guess he had to, you know, limit it down. But yeah. Barbera seemed to be not as crazy of a rattle I think he could have picked, mm-hmm. but I, I thought it was you know, a good choice. Yep. So when you think, Kim, Italy, and you want to recommend two, uh, like a red and a white, unusual, what would you say? The mm. first two you think of. Ooh, that's 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 tough because, there, like I said, there are so many like less familiar. Um, I might go south and go Nero Davola from Sicily for a red because that really is the red wine of the entire island of Sicily. And Nero Davila is relatively popular. But again, it's one of those things that isn't really grown in a whole lot of places. I think they grow some in Australia. Is that right? Yeah. They they, grow some, yeah. There's a controversy controversy with some Nero Davila being labeled as such in Australia. And then white is, there are so many different whites and it depends on the region of the country that you're in. I like to say that, you know, there are all these white grape varieties from Italy that all start with V and that they all have some similarities to each other. You know, they're light, they're minerally, they're bright, they're great with food and seafood. So there's Vernaccia and Verdicchio and Vermentino. Um, So if you see a white wine and it starts with a V, chances are it's one of those styles of white from Italy. I'm particularly partial to Vermentino, so I might go with that one. Yeah, I was going to pick Vermentino for my white. And and from the south as well, I would go red with Primitivo because I I feel it's kind of the the palate of the American Zinfandel drinker. Absolutely, that big fruity. Um, He mentions two others from the south, Alianico and Sagrantino. And I never think of Sagrantino. No. But it produces big, powerful, like gutsy red wines that I think for a lot of people who like like big Cabernets, um, Sagrantino is is a great option. Food wines. Mm-hmm. Definitely food wine. All right, so let's move now to New Zealand he covered. And this one I think was probably my most shocking recommendations from New Zealand because everybody thinks Sauvignon Blanc. But he was mentioning Syrah and Cab Franc. Yeah. Which I thought that was I, a have little... Have you even seen Cab Franc from New Zealand? No. It makes sense. 
but I have not seen any. You know, Cabernet Franc is a, a little bit of a chameleon wine. You know, it's very dependent on the climate that it's grown in. So when you have warm weather Cabernet Franc, it's big and fruity and juicy and very much like Cabernet Sauvignon. But if you grow in cooler climates, it gets more like green bell pepper and like kind of funky underripe things. It almost smells like like a freshly sharpened pencil sometimes. So I don't know if there are some places in New Zealand that are too cool and that will produce Cab Franc on that more vegetal side of things. I prefer the riper ones, but I'm not really sure exactly where in New Zealand they're finding these good sites for Cabernet Franc. So I think that would be something interesting to look out for because they do grow very good Pinot Noir in in New Zealand and Cabernet Franc might just be a logical next step for a red grape. Yeah, we had this discussion on a, a past show where you went to a friend's house and they said New Zealand wine and right away you were thinking Sauvignon Blanc and they served you what? Chardonnay, I believe. So you were kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was so, totally taken by surprise that it was a glass of Chardonnay. But like you said, these two reds for me from this area, very unusual. I always think even Pinot Noir, when you say Pinot Noir from New Zealand, people think is unusual, but I think they know the grape varietal. So to say it's from this region, I, I don't think they really yeah. care. For that, that one, I think it's the grape variety is way more important than where is it coming from? So then he moved to uh, Germany with two varietals. I thought it was interesting. He he mentioned Spatburgunder. Spatburgunder. How do you say it? German. Spatburgunder. Spatburgunder. Which is just Pinot Noir. So I was so straight. I thought it was very strange that he mentioned Spatburgunder. It's like, yeah, you're using a different name for it, but this is one of the most popular grapes yeah. in the entire world. Well, he said it's similar to Burgundy, but he never mentioned, I don't think, Pinot Noir. He just said it's similar to a Burgundy. Style-wise, yeah. that's true. So why not just say, you know, this is German he Pinot Noir. He wanted to go totally yeah. crazy with That's the, how I sell the wine and that's how I talk about the wine. I'm like, it's German Pinot Noir. So yeah, I, I kind of and threw had, that one out the window. <laughs> I've had a few different versions of, of German Pinot Noir and sometimes, they, I mean, they're so light to begin with because mm-hmm. it's so cold, the climate, but sometimes they're really funky and sometimes yeah. they have good fruit. So I, it's a, I don't know, it's a it's a dangerous adventure. <laughs> Jury's out on our yeah. German Pinot Noirs here. What was the white, Kim? Silvana. Silvana. Have you even yeah, seen I, a lot of it? I've seen a little bit. It's not as aromatic and beautiful as Riesling. There are some similarities. I feel that Sylvaner is a little more similar to, say, Pinot Blanc or Gruner Veltliner. Not really in the same category of quality wines as Riesling. I do kind of think of it as a, a second tier, not really playing with the big boys for Sylvaner. But there are some good examples out there from some of the better German winemakers. I, I don't know. I was sort of, I thought this was a curious uh, addition as well. Well, definitely good for unusual varietals, that's for sure. So then he moved to Australia and he talked about Simeon for white. Simeon is very widely planted in Australia. And it is a great variety that when you plant it in a warmer region, you not only get high alcohol, but you get these big, lush, powerful, powerful whites. Um, And it's also used extensively for dessert wine. So Australia has always had a tradition of making sweet wines and making dessert wines. So so this is sort of a natural grape variety, I think, to be planted in Australia. And I know a lot of the times in the past, they've loved to blend this with other whites. Mm-hmm. Chardonnay. Sauvignon Blanc is a Sauvignon. is a blending partner. And they would put it on the label. And I think what they found was they took it off because they wanted people to know, yeah, it's Sauvignon Blanc, it's Chardonnay, but you know, we have 15% of it. People right. saw that and they were afraid of the varietal. So marketing wise, they still blend it a lot of times, but they don't put it on the label. Yeah, I remember that forever ago with Rosemary when Rosemont was very, very popular in the early 2000s where they had a Chardonnay Semillon and the Chardonnay Semillon didn't sell nearly as well as just the straight Chardonnay. So I think a lot of that 
that was because of what you just mentioned. So last, well, actually you mentioned two uh, regions close to one another, but you put them together was mm-hmm. Spain and Portugal. And Spain was Alberino, which uh, I think people, again, it's in one of those varietals, they're afraid of it or mm-hmm. they don't like to find it, but great food wine. Yep. I love Alberino. We drink a lot of it at home. And Mark and I are both concentrating and doing some Spanish studies right now. So we're we're tasting a lot of Spanish wines. Uh, so Alberino, I would throw Verdejo in here too, because that's my other favorite white grape from Spain. And then right over the border in Portugal, you have similar wines. But what was interesting about this one was he didn't really mention a grape variety, but a style of wine from the Vino Verde region, which uh, we've spoken about before on previous shows. But this is another one of those bright, light, great with food, easy to drink white wines, great for summertime, hot weather, but one of those wines that I think is very, very user friendly and anyone who likes white wine can open a bottle of this and be happy with it. I was thinking if we did cover the Vino Verde region in past shows, but then we also just covered white blends mm-hmm. and I wasn't even thinking of this as yeah. being considered people go and to it for totally white is. blend. Yes, absolutely. It's always fun how things come back I when know. we're thinking. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are hosts, Mark and Kim, and we're exploring all things wine with you today. If you'd like to get more information about our show, you can find past episodes on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. If you'd like to follow Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to follow myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we want to talk about an update of what's going on in China, Kim, with the wine industry. And this was in winesearcher.com, and we've covered China news in the past, and we just wanted to talk what's the update on what's trending there in wine because they import so much wine from the United States and it affects I guess what we can get as far as cult wines maybe because a lot of the good stuff's going there so let's update the listeners what the news is. A lot of what is consumed and purchased on the Chinese market tends to be sort of higher end more prestige bottles because they're often given as gifts or consumed during business negotiations or given as client gifts and you want to make a good impression when giving a bottle so wine is understood as a high prestige item. Red wines especially, you know, there was some talk in here about how red is a lucky color uh, in Chinese culture so that giving red wines, there's an, it's an extension of that. And we're talking about high-end Napa bottles, a lot of good Bordeaux, things with, with prestige associated with them because you want to make a good impression. But that being said, not exactly the best wines to go with the variety of cuisines. And China is a big place with a lot of different food traditions. And especially if we're talking about cuisine cuisines like Sichuan cuisine, which is very highly based on really spicy things. Red wine and big tannic high alcohol red wines aren't the best pairing for those kinds of foods. So we are starting to see a trend towards lighter wines, white wines, sparkling wines. As people get more comfortable with what can be consumed, that we are starting to see this change. One of the things that I found very interesting in this article about a barrier to drinking white wines is the temperature. Did you pick up on that in this article? Yeah. Temperature? They, of the wine? They, yeah, they still have a sweet tooth, but they had a thing about two, what was it? Two, yeah, that they don't like it warm, a, or certainly warmer, room the opposite, temperature? room temperature, and colder drinks aren't usually consumed, and they say especially um, for folks over a certain age who traditionally would have been only drinking either room temperature beverages or hot beverages like tea, the idea of drinking something chilled is very different and maybe too much of a hurdle to get over. So it seems like lighter wines, white wines, rosés, 
sommeliers, sparkling wines, things that are consumed colder are more geared towards the younger generation who might have been brought up more on orange soda or more Western kinds of beverages. So a little bit less traditional Chinese stuff. Yeah, you mentioned the soda, Kim, and and one of the big things they like to do with their red wine is mix it with Coca-Cola to make it actually sweet. They have such a sweet palate. So in return... Yeah, but Italians and Spaniards have been doing that for generations too. My mother says... Well, they're doing this with the good wines. Well, (laughs) my mother says when she was little and they were... She comes from an Italian family with all the kids would have a little bit of red wine with their orange soda or their Coca-Cola. So it would all be mixed together. And I used to have a roommate who was from Spain and she said that they did this too. That they mixed red wine and, and soda. So I this might be a universal thing of yeah. mixing red wine well, with soda. I don't know. We've talked about that in the past where in, in Franklin, and a lot of our listeners probably know, there's a, the Franklin wine cooler is is orange soda <laughs> orange with soda Italian red, red wine. wine. So, <laughs> so this we is do really a, a thing, people. <laughs> so they were saying in China, still red wine dominates 80% of the market, but they are starting to explore the whites, but they like the sweet whites. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's good that they're looking for something else. And maybe like you said, Kim, they're adapting because of their food. To me, we always kind of go back and forth about whites and temperature. But if they want to drink them a little warm, to me, I think it's good as long as they're getting the quality of the wine where you can drink it at a little warmer temperature. And the starting with the sweeter whites is what I think as completely normal. And I talk about this with people all the time when we talk about our palates mature or, you know, get a little bit more experience with drinking. And and I do a lot of events with younger people, not not on obviously younger than 21, but folks in their mid-20s. And I get a lot of questions about, I drink, I only like kind of slightly sweet wines. Is that okay? I'm like, of course it's okay. You need to start somewhere. And generally when people are novice wine drinkers, you start with something a little bit sweet and then you kind of move up from there at your own pace. So not only does that work for individuals, but apparently it works for entire cultures as well who are not familiar with, with wine. So this is something to watch. And I think that this is like right on target and and we'll see where it goes. And I was thinking, Kim, we covered this before. And before we started talking about it, I wrote a note to myself to say, why would the average consumer in the United States care what's going on in China, right, with the trends in the market? But I think it really affects the people who collect higher end stuff like Bordeaux yeah. or cult wines, because a lot of the people are shipping stuff to China and there's less on the market now in the mm-hmm. United States. So yep. I think people should be concerned with the trends over there. There's a lot of people over there who can start consuming wine and take up all of our resources for wine so or we can you know maybe put a positive spin on it and be like as tastes change in different parts of the world it opens up new markets for for producers over here so looking at it less from consumer perspective of hey they're taking all our wine and more from the perspective of great this is a great new way for american producers to sell more wine to a larger audience so i'm going to take that positive spin on it oh yeah it's all positive (laughs) they're drinking wine it's all good news We all think it's positive. It's good news. Thank you for listening to us on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, visiting with you every week to talk about the trends in the wine world. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and listen to past episodes on iTunes. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.